Right, morning. Oh, can you pass me my phone? I need a hotspot up here. <laughs> so, we're looking at Timothy. Who's been reading along with Timothy? Anybody? It's on our, uh, what we're doing at the minute in our reading the Bible in two years, which is uh, great. Um, I have been... Uh, this week, reading away at Timothy. In fact, I read it a couple of months ago to try and, uh, you know, prepare and think about what I was going to say. And I read it then. And, you know, sometimes when you're in a rush or even when you're not in a rush and your hands are full of things and you're heading out the door and your coat pocket catches on the handle and you're like, like that. That happens to me when I read the Bible sometimes. <laughs> That's basically the only way I can describe it. My mind snags on something the same way my coat pocket snags on the door handle. And then I routinely ignore that, study all the rest of it and think about all the thoughts that there are and fill pages and pages of my notebook and then come back to the thing that my coat pocket caught on the very first time. That happened to anybody else? So we're going to cover all of 1 and 2 Timothy <laughs> this morning, so strap in. Here we go. Um, 1 and 2 Timothy is actually a part of the story of Ephesians, right? So it's not just about Timothy. It's actually really embedded in the story of the church in Ephesus. So let me just give you a bit of a, a rundown of what it was like or of the things that are related to the church in Ephesus. So it was planted in AD 53 by Paul. Paul went on a couple of, mission, they're called missionary journeys, and he wandered about uh, in that part of the world, and he planted churches all over the place, and he did, a, this was, he did a couple of missionary journeys, and in Ephesus, he stayed there for two or three years, preaching and teaching and setting up the church and establishing their theology. Now, Ephesus was not at all um, Christian, or I mean... He, he was setting up Christianity in Ephesus, but before that, it was not at all Jewish. It was very um, pagan. It was a, a Gentile city. There wasn't a lot of understanding about the Jewish religion there. So Paul went, he found all these people who were like, oh, we need a savior. And he was like, great, here is one. Be a Christian. They were like, yes, amazing. So the church got set up and it was great. And then, so that was in about AD 53. In AD 60, so 70 years later, Paul writes to the church, which is our letter to the Ephesians, which you've all read. Um, and he talks to the Ephesians in that, and it's really encouraging. And he's like, oh, you guys are great. And I pray for you that you would have all of this wonderful wisdom and salvation. That's my favorite bit in Ephesians, uh, is the prayer he prays in the beginning. Um, so he writes to the church, it's really encouraging, uh, and that's in AD 60. Then in AD 64, he writes 1 Timothy. So four years later, he writes the first letter to Timothy, and he's like, listen, you need to get in there. Some things have gone a bit wrong. Just need you to step in, take a bit of leadership, see how that goes. Now, Paul is... At that time, he's a free man. He's been in prison for ages, and then... He gets released for a short period of time. He writes this letter to Timothy. And then in AD 66 or 7, so about another three or four years later, Paul writes again to Timothy. So then we've got 2 Timothy. And in the second letter, Paul's in prison. He's about to be executed. This is his last ever letter. This is the last letter he wrote ever that we know of. Um, and he writes to Timothy, who's like a son to him. So this is his like love letter to Timothy. And it's full of emotion towards Timothy and it's full of uh, more kind of 
uh, ideas about faithfulness to the gospel. Um, stick, keep the main thing, the main thing, Timothy. Go in there, get these people to keep the main thing, the main thing. And then the last thing uh, from the Bible about the church of Ephesus is in Revelation. So in Revelation, the church in Ephesus is one of the letters that is written uh, through John on Patmos. And in that, uh, God speaks to the church in Ephesus again. So that's much later. That's about AD 95. So like 30 years later. There's a letter, another letter to the church in Ephesus. Okay, so all of this, so all of Timothy is relating to this church that got set up by Paul in Ephesus. You all with me? Okay, great. So how does it fit in the kind of whole story of the Bible? Well, the thing that I was thinking about uh, is the kind of the way that the Bible goes and this kind of overarching theme that runs all the way through the Bible and all the way through my life, your life, potentially our lives, is this idea that uh, we realize that God loves us, it hits us, we love him back, we ruin it. God does something amazing to get us back into relationship with him. We realize God loves us, we love him back, we ruin it. God pursues us, we realize that he loves us, we love him back. You get the picture? We were in it. Genesis, they did it. All the way through each story in Genesis is the same thing, isn't it? People figure out that God loves them. God does something miraculous and amazing. And people are like, oh, this God is so great. They follow him. They're like, we will never follow any other gods. This God is amazing. Then they're like, oh, but look at this golden calf. They ruin it. Or God does something incredible. He provides them all this manna and all this water out of a rock and all these incredible things happen. And they're like, oh, God is so amazing. He got us all these times through the wilderness. And then they're like, yeah, but this food is a bit boring, isn't it? They ruin it. It happens all the way through the Bible. In the histories, it happens over and over. The people of Israel discover that God loves them. He calls them back to himself. They're like, oh my gosh, this God loves me. And then they just wander off into other things. And in my life, same story. I have these encounters with God where I'm like, oh, you love me so much. And then I'm like really impacted by it. And then time goes on. And as time goes on, I kind of get used to it, really. And I start taking it for granted. And then I ruin it. And then God has to go, hey. I still love you. And I'm like, oh, you love me. Okay, you get the picture. It goes on and on like that. It's how the Bible works. <laughs> or it's a lot of how the Bible works. So it's potentially no surprise that the story of the church in Ephesus is the same. They have this glorious time with Paul. They get converted. He's there. He does all the preaching and teaching. They're really loving it. In the first letter, he's like, oh, I just encourage you guys so much. Stay as one body. Watch out for the hours of the enemy. It's amazing. And then a bit later on, they ruin it. Things go a bit wrong. Stuff starts going wrong. And if we just read Timothy and... We're looking for, uh, you know, instruction and we're looking for verses to like pin stuff on, like our theology about women or slaves or any of that kind of thing. You can find it in there if you want to. I'm going to talk about what Timothy means in the kind of overview or why I feel like God has shown me about Timothy, which was on 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. So you can imagine this is my coat pocket snagging on the handle right in the beginning, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, the very first time I read this. But the goal of our instruction is love, which springs from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Simon's going to put scriptures up, but I might have them from the Amplified Bible, so they might be slightly different. But the goal of our instruction is love, which springs from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, sometimes I read Paul and I find him a bit tricky because I don't always, I, I hear the passion, I hear the absolute commitment to Jesus and the story and the gospel, but sometimes I don't hear the love. Sometimes I don't get that in his writing or I don't understand it from that perspective. And so this changed my understanding of what Paul was saying because he says right in the beginning, he says the goal of all of this is love. What we believe about love matters. So then, after lots of other reading of the scripture and trying to find out what God was saying and all the other bits, I came back to this and was like, oh, this is the point you want me to make. Fair enough. <laughs> what we believe about love matters. In 1 John 4, verse 18, it says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. The goal of love is relationship, right? I mean, I sometimes say things like, I love dairy milk. I don't really mean I'm in a relationship with dairy milk. So that's not the kind of love we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of love that is about relationship. And the kind of love that is about relationship requires action. It requires engagement. It requires expression. It requires it to be received. It's not just a kind of empty idea. It's an actual verb, it's a doing word, it's got legs, it's got hands, it's got all of that stuff. Love actually means something. It isn't about fear of punishment. And so when we're in a relationship with God and God is like, I love you. And I'm like, I love you. Oh my gosh. And then I ruin it. Then I get into fear, right? Because I'm like, I've ruined it now. I'm in fear. What if God doesn't love me? What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not worthy? What if this is the time that God is like, no. You're right, too many times. That isn't how love works. When I was 18 years old at school, I um, was in the, I was part of the, uh, I was in every club in society, as you can imagine, at school. I was in them all. Um, I absolutely loved school. I was involved in absolutely everything and I paid very little attention to my studies, but everything else I was absolutely up for. And uh, I was part of the school play. I'd always done all the plays all the way through. And in my final year, I was head of costume, which was like quite a big job. I went to like a, a posh grammar school that had, you know, we, we borrowed all our costumes from the National Theatre, darling. Um, and I was in charge of all the costumes and it was amazing. I had such a good time. It was like months and months of prep and rehearsal and the show was amazing. And at the end of the show, everybody was planning to so all my year group. There was tons of us. There must have been about 20 or 30 of us from upper sixth as it was then in the show or involved in the show and we were going to have uh, a kind of we were going to go out loads of us were already 18 so we were going to go out and then we were going to stay over at this guy James's house now I knew that my parents would not be okay with that so I lied 
And uh, my friend, my best friend and I concocted this plan that I would stay at her house and we would, uh, no, we would tell my parents that we were going to stay at her house, but we were actually going to stay at this guy James's house. Now listen, don't judge me. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> don't judge me. I knew that there were like 20 or 30 of us. No one's getting up to anything bad. We were just going to hang out. And I was a good kid. I loved the Lord. I didn't drink. I wasn't naughty. I was good. I, was, I had, didn't have any intentions of doing anything bad. It was just that we were going to sleep all in the one room at this guy's house. And I knew my parents wouldn't be up for that. Probably rightly so. So I lied. We went out. We had a great night. We went home. We stayed at his house. 25 of us. I slept under his desk on the floor. It was horrible. The next morning, my best friend was there. She got a call from her mum saying, you two, I sent a taxi for you two. Where are you? Emma's dad has just called to say that he has to come and get her early. And, and I didn't know that you were supposed to be staying here. And so I lied and told him that you were upstairs asleep. <laughs> you get in that taxi right now and get back round here. So I'm like, ah, because... <laughs> Petrified, absolutely petrified. So I'm like, we're like getting all our stuff together, taxi outside, Hong Kong, we're out in the car, getting home. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to tell my dad? We're going to have to like make something up to go. Oh my God, I'm like freaking out because I'm scared. Get home. Her mom is like, right, you better ring him. I told him you'd ring him when you got up and you were asleep and now you're up. Ring him. So I rang him. I was like, hey, dad, yeah, just that, um, yeah. He was like, going to have to come and get you early. I was like, okay, yeah. And I got off the phone. I'm crying. I'm like, oh no, I've lied to my dad. Anyway, I got away with it. <laughs> He's going to listen to this. I know he is. I got away with it. But I couldn't keep up the lie. It was, it was forgotten at that stage. Like, my dad just accepted that and was like okay with it but I knew in my heart I knew I have lied and I am a terrible liar we sometimes play this game called mafia where you have to lie and say whether you are or you aren't the mafia and I can't do it my face goes red and I'm like oh yeah I'm in the mafia I'm terrible at it I can't do it so even though my dad had fully accepted that that was what had happened after two weeks I couldn't live with it anymore and I told him because even though for me there was some fear there of punishment, my relationship with my dad is so much more important to me than any amount of fear. And I, it was stopping me from really engaging with him because I was scared and I was like nervous and I knew I'd done something. I knew he'd be disappointed. Even though he didn't know, I just couldn't handle it. And so I told him. And I actually don't really remember what happened? Because the result of that was my relationship with him was restored. I hadn't lied to him anymore. He still loved me. I still loved him. My relationship was clear. There is no fear in love because fear is about punishment. But perfect love drives out fear. Now, listen, I'm not saying that my dad's perfect. He is wonderful. But only God is perfect. And only God's love is perfect. And if my dad can love me enough to drive out that kind of fear, surely God's love is bigger, is deeper, is wider, can drive out any fear that you have about stuff that is in the way between you and God that he might not even, you know, he might not think it's that big a deal. He might, but you know 
Love drives out fear. So then I started thinking, what would Matt do? So I started looking into what words mean in the actual original Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> I know, guys. This might be the first time ever. So I went to the first time that love is mentioned in the Bible. Because the law of firsts, right? It's always a thing in literature. There's a law. The first time something gets mentioned. So the first time love is mentioned in the Bible is the word ahabta. And it's in Genesis 22. And it blew my mind that this was the first mention of love in the Bible. It's the bit where God says to Abraham, now take your son Isaac. In the Amplified it says, your son of promise. A-H-A-B-T-A. <laughs> now take your son, your only son of promise, whom you love, Isaac, and go and sacrifice him. That's the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. And it is a foreshadowing. The story of Isaac is the story of Jesus, is the story of our salvation, is the story of love poured out, is the story of how God never fails, is the story of how God provides the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Wow. That's love right there. And then in Exodus 20, verse 6, one of the commandments, this is the first time that God talks about love in the Bible, where God speaks about love. Same word, achapta. In Exodus 20, verse 6, it says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, idols. He's talking about, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Wonderful. The consequence of love is love and more love and love and then some love and then to a thousand generations love and then more love and then some love. Getting it? Consequence of love, love, more love, all of the love. <laughs> I started thinking about why does God love me? Because he really loves us, right? He really loves us. Do we believe that? That God loves us? Yeah, he really loves us. In Deuteronomy 9, I find the answer. It is not because of your righteousness <laughs> or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. I love this. God's like, do you know what? I love you, even though you are not righteous, and you don't always do the right thing, and you're stubborn, stiff-necked. You are stubborn, and yet, all the way through the Bible, it's the same story. God says, I love you. We go, oh, amazing. I love you back. Then we ruin it. It just goes on over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. 
God then gives him some instructions and says, hey, now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and observe the Lord's commands. We are chosen. You are chosen by God for the outpouring of his love and affection over and over and over again, without fear, without uh, condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Without condemnation, you are entitled, you are chosen for love. Over and over and over. Never ending. His faithfulness is new every morning. There's so many scriptures that just back this up and like come flooding into my head over and over and over again. Like 1 John 14, we love because he first loved us. Why do I love? Because you first loved me. I get it. Oh, I love you back. So in Timothy, what was the relevance of this, I suppose? In Timothy, Paul is writing to these churches because they're full of people who love God. They're full of people that God loves. And they're in a city that is really important to the spread of the gospel. It's kind of between east and west. It's, it's got a great position. It's got loads of people who need to know Jesus. And this church are there. And Paul is writing to Timothy to say, listen, some stuff has gone wrong. But the goal of this is love. So there's some people who are teaching wrong stuff, just correct them because the goal of this is love and the story of the gospel is love and they're kind of making it about other things, about laws and things that you should and shouldn't do uh, that are according to some other kind of ideas and actually the goal of that is not sound doctrine and then everybody gets into a big fight about it and actually that's not love, is it? Like when we start getting fighting about semantics or uh, whatever things that are immaterial to the gospel story which is God loves you without condemnation over and over and over again. Paul writes to Timothy and says and I think you might recognize some of these things. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Yeah, I got caught on that one. <laughs> Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Anybody recognize any of those things? The goal of, of Paul's letter to Timothy isn't you know, these people are to get out. The goal of the letter is to say, correct this stuff. This is what's going to be happening. And he's not talking here about the people in the world, whatever that means. He's talking about people in the church because it says having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
He's talking to people in the church. He's saying in the last days, there's going to be people in the church who are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, all of these things, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy. And he says, oh, this isn't what the church is meant to be. The church is about love. The gospel is about love. God is about love. I got really having a form of godliness, but denying its power. I read this, um, I'm going to give you an analogy, but it's not mine is what I'm trying to say. I didn't come up with it, but it just makes so much sense to me. As uh, Imagine you've got a wonderful cup and in it is all of the goodness of God and the love of God and everything else. And you just lick the outside of the cup That's having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You're kind of, you're, uh, you know, going to church, but it's not actually really reforming your life. You pray, you know, you sort of pray, but it's like the same prayer every day, like, thanks for our food, God, amen. You're not encountering the actual person or the love of God in any great way. You sing some songs, but they don't always really impact, or you're not really thinking about the words, or you're not really paying attention to that. Or when you read the Bible, you're reading it, because you want to prove your own point. Or you just go to church because it looks good, or you've always gone, or somebody else might judge you if you don't go, but actually inside, in your heart, you're like, Ugh, this is really just for show. I don't really want to go. It's a little bit like licking the outside of the cup having a really great doctrine, having a really sorted out theology, having a really good assigned set of rules that you follow and obligations that you fulfill is a bit like licking the outside of a really lovely cup. I mean, the cup might be absolutely delightful, but licking the outside of it isn't getting you anywhere. Jeremiah talks about this. He says, my people have committed well, God says through Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, the insides of the cup. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken ones that don't even hold water. Sometimes I think we do that, don't we? Because as humans, we love a system. We love a set of rules. We love to know where the line is between us and them. We love to know where the line is between right and wrong. We love to know where the line is between uh, good and evil. And we like to really demarcate that so that we can either be right or other people can be wrong. Obviously, other people wrong, me, right. Sort of misses the point of the inside of the cup, doesn't it? Like there was a whole law, and when Jesus was asked, what is the, what's the main point of the law? What did Jesus say? Greatest commandment, what did Jesus say? <laughs> She'd like to hear the mumbles. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He summed it up. Boom, like that. What's the point of all that? Love. Are you getting it? <laughs> I love how Jesus holds love. I mean, God is love. 
says that in 1 John a couple of times. So Jesus, you would imagine, is the very epitome of love. And I love how subversively he carried that. So think about some of the miracles that Jesus did. They were absolutely smashing down the religious outside of the cup that everybody was licking in those days. So he turned water into wine, which is great in itself. But the best thing about it is that the wine appeared in the jugs that they were supposed to use for the ceremonial cleaning of hands. Those were not wine jugs. There would have been loads of wine jugs around because they'd had loads of wine at the wedding already and it had run out. So there were loads of receptacles for wine everywhere. But Jesus chose to use the water butts that were supposed to be used for the ceremonial cleaning of hands. So what he was basically saying was, stop washing your hands, enjoy life. This is the goodness of God. Then Sabbath. Nobody's allowed to do anything on Sabbath. Jesus goes to the temple and there's a man with a withered hand. No, the man who couldn't walk. And he goes up to the man and he says to the man, be healed. The man is healed. And he says, now pick up your mat and go home. Oh, that's where the Pharisees got involved. They were like, no, no, you can't do that. You can't pick stuff up on the Sabbath. So not only has this poor man been crippled his whole life, he's not got to go home bedless. But Jesus carries love differently, right? He loved that man. He was like, you need healed. You are physically unwell. I'm going to heal you. And then actually, it is not very loving to be like, now go home and be cold. And lay just on the whole hard floor. He's like, you pick up your mat and you take that home as well. Oh, I love him. Think about when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He broke about a thousand Jewish laws that day. And yet, because of love, he spoke to that woman and he said, hey, I give water inside of the cup. I give water that will never run dry. I know exactly who you are. I know that you've all these men on the go or haven't gone on. And yet the person that Jesus chose to break all those laws for, to speak to, was somebody that he knew all of that about her. And he wanted to say to her, you, I love you. Jesus carried love differently. He didn't carry it in a legalistic, it has to look like this way, or this is what it means to love people. He carried it in a way that was individual to each person. Like other people that he healed on the Sabbath, he didn't make them break Sabbath laws. He just healed them. And then people were mad at him, not the person picking up their mat. Think about the woman caught in adultery. She was brought before all of these men who had the right by Jewish law to stone her to death. Jesus appears, carries love differently. He says, yeah, not okay. However, if any of you have lived a perfect life, go ahead. That is a different carrying of love. Jesus didn't carry it in this legalistic, systematic, squared in, tiny, tight, little way that we sometimes think that we have to carry our faith or we have to carry the love that we have for other people. He carried it in this way that was like big and expansive and honoring of people and it was without fear and it was without condemnation and it was like, you, I love you. Yes, done loads of things. Think about Mary Magdalene. She was was potentially a prostitute and what did she do she washed Jesus feet with her hair same Mary right 
Loads of laws broken. Jesus carried love differently. And Paul is talking to Timothy about all these things that have gone wrong in this church that are things that Timothy can go and sort out. But the goal of all of that, as you read Timothy over the next couple of days, we're nearly done, I think. I've read it so many times now, I forget where we are. Um, but the goal of everything that Paul says in Timothy is to bring love. Keep that in mind as you read it. The last thing that we hear about the church in Ephesus is in Revelation. Revelation 2. And this is 30 years after Paul's last letter to Timothy. And John is on Patmos. He's in exile and he has this great big vision. And the angel of the Lord, uh, or God, has this big revelation for all the churches. And this is what it says to Ephesus. Listen. I know I'm paraphrasing. Listen. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but aren't and find them false. He's saying, hey, listen, you have persevered. One of the things that Timothy was, or that Paul was talking about in his letter to Timothy was, how do you know somebody who's given you false doctrine? So in Revelation, we find out they did it. They figured out who was giving them false doctrine. You've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. So that was in the letter to Ephesians. Like Paul was like, you know, and Timothy, keep running, keep going, keep running this race. Like persevere, keep the main thing, the main thing, keep going. Yet I hold this against you. Matt does a great talk about what that means. So if you don't forget that talk on Revelation where Matt talked about what it means when it says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. So even though they had persevered, they'd found out who the false apostles were, they'd suffered, they'd gone through all of these things, God is calling them back to love because it isn't enough to have sound doctrine or do good things or persevere or experience suffering if all of that is just licking the outside of the cup. What God is offering is the inside of the cup, which is love, connection, relationship, no condemnation, encouragement, forgiveness, mercy, peace, joy, goodness. That's all inside the cup in our encounter and our relationship with the actual person of Jesus, with the actual heavenly father, with our Holy Spirit inside us working away. Those are the encounters that are the inside of the cup where we allow God to say, I love you more than anything you could ever have done. It covers all of that. It's bigger than all of that. More than any signed or unsigned doctrine that you have, I love you. More than any expression you have of what it means to be a Christian, I love you. Come, drink from the fountain of life. Not, don't lick the outside of the cup. 
<laughs> That's all you're going to remember from this, isn't it? You're just going to remember <laughs> this image of licking the outside of a cup. God wants to encounter you this morning in a big way with his love. Matt. So, as you read all of the Timothy, remember that this is really part of a much bigger story of what God does all the time, which is he reveals his love to us. We experience his love, and then somehow we mess it up, and then he reveals it again, and we believe it again, and then somehow we mess it up, and then he reveals it again, and it is never-ending. It could be daily, it could be monthly, it could be yearly, it doesn't matter. God's love, his heart for you, his desire for a relationship with you will never end. I remember, you know, when you're a teenager, if you grew up in church, I grew up in church. I loved the Lord from the age of four. And uh, yet I got saved at every big event I went to. I was down the front. I was at every altar call. I experienced the love of God, like impact me over and over. And that was just, that was part of my process was that I, oh, hey. He's fine. Uh, <laughs> No, he's not fine. Oh, nerve-wracking. Um, yeah, you're attached there. <laughs> there is no amount of times that is ever... You ne you, you're not running out of chances ever. You never run out of chances to experience the love of God. You never run out of chances. God is never going to say, oh no, too many now. Never. And he wants to call us back to our first love. Do you remember that first time that you realized that God loved you? Do you remember that? The first time? Oh, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you for this story of the Bible where you pursue us from the beginning all the way through to the end and that that has never ceased. Thank you that your heart and your desire for us is love, relationship, connection, freedom, Forgiveness, joy, peace. Thank you, God, that even when you correct us or even when we know that there's something between us, even in that moment, you're saying, hey, come to me. I love you. I love you. You are chosen. Let's stand together. Or kneel. Or whatever you want to do.
going to give the Holy Spirit a few minutes to just overwhelm you with his love. (laughs) Father, we ask this morning that you would pour out your love once again in your mercy, God. Not because we deserve it, we know that. But because you are good, because your heart is full of love and always for connection. Lord, I pray that as we stand here and just wait, that we would be overwhelmed by your love. That it would find its way through all the little hard places in our heart, soften them up. That it would flow over all of those things that we think couldn't possibly be okay. Call us back to our first love. If you would like somebody to pray for you, please come on over here. The ministry team will be over here. Yeah. Or give a wave. Someone will come and find you. Don't leave without knowing that God loves you unconditionally with no condemnation.